0: Welcome to the Ridley College podcast. Here you'll find expert content from past Ridley events, including our public lectures, a series of scholarly lectures in biblical studies and Christian thought. Tune in to hear from leading voices on the New Testament, children's and youth ministry, evangelicalism, Anglicanism, missiology, and much more.
1: My name is Rhys Bezant, I am the Dean of the Anglican Institute, and Mondays are the day when our ordinands gather, this is kind of formally part of their program. It's wonderful to be able to uh, welcome Chris Wright to uh, Ridley this afternoon. Chris is not here for the first time, he's visited us over a number of years, in fact I was saying to Chris just a few minutes ago, I remember him giving a lecture here in the mid-90s on missiology in the Psalms and I wasn't aware at those times that there could be missiology in the psalms, so it was quite an important uh, lecture for me to listen to. Chris is the International Ministries Director of Langham Partnership International and previously has been uh, a lecturer at Pune, the Union Bible Seminary in India and Principal of All Nations Christian College in England. You might have met Chris, as it were, through some of his writings, God's people in God's land, or knowing Jesus through the Old Testament, or the mission of God unlocking the Bible's grand narrative, amongst some of the books that I have used myself. It's wonderful, Chris, that you can spare the time. Thank you so much for being with us. I'd ask Brian to give a formal welcome. Good afternoon, everyone. It's great to have you with us, and hi to everyone online.
2: Um, Chris's work I've followed over many years, and just to add my own testimony, uh, there are four commentaries you'll want to have a look at, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Exodus, and Deuteronomy. And one of my favourite books by Chris is The God I Don't Understand, uh, which looks at uh, all sorts of uh, difficult, the hard sayings of Jesus and uh, the difficult texts in the Old Testament as well, uh, very helpfully. Uh, the Anglican Institute Lecture is one of a series of lectures in our public lectures each year and it's uh, a great opportunity uh, to have uh, Chris, who's just in town for not very long, uh, to give it this year. So Chris, welcome to you and I'll just pray for us as, as we hand it over. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your mission in the world, which has touched each of our lives. And thank you for Ridley's small part in training men and women for that mission in our complex changing world. Uh, We do pray that uh, today would be of real benefit to each one of us. Please encourage us, uh, lift our spirits, build us up, we pray, and uh, make us more effective in promoting the gospel in our world. Uh, Help us, Lord, to repent where we've failed you and to uh, live our lives to your glory. Uh, Please enable Chris now as he comes to speak to us uh, to uh, uh, help us in
1: all these ways. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Let me read from uh, Jeremiah chapter 1. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the thirteenth year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Alas, Sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I'm too young. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. You see, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be Please welcome Chris.
3: Thank you so much, Reese and uh, Brian, for your welcome. It is lovely to be back here at Ridley. Uh, been a few times over the years. I'd almost forgotten that visit in the 1990s uh, on missiology and the Psalms, but um, at least somebody remembers it. That's always, always very encouraging. Uh, and here we are again. And yes, it is a bit of a flying visit. I've actually been up in, in Sydney this last week with uh, Langham Partnership, which I work for the ministries begun by John Stott. Uh, and uh, they initially wanted to have the International Council meet in Australia, uh back in 2019 or 20 I think uh, 2020 I think it was and of course then COVID hit and all the plans got postponed year after year but we were able to meet up there with people from all every continent uh where the work of God through Langham is is now uh, busy so it's good to be there for all of last week uh, and now here as it were in Melbourne just for the last 24 hours almost I'll be leaving tomorrow afternoon to go back home to London so what's it like then to be a preacher or a pastor uh, in times like these in a world where in many cultures, including Western culture in general, and I'm sure here in Australia, certainly in Britain and elsewhere. There's a deep rooted skepticism about any claims or assumptions that people might make, particularly as regards what is true, about the truth. I mean, there may be your truth and my truth and his truth or her truth, but when anybody claims to know the truth, that is often mocked, or worse, or cancelled. Now that that kind of relativism, of course, uh, used to be confined to matters of opinion and religious faith, but it's now rampant even in the so-called real world of facts, when we're told that there are alternative facts, apparently. And even science, which was somewhat of the high priest of the secular age, is no longer trusted by large swathes of people, as we particularly saw revealed during the pandemic with anti-vax and conspiracy theories that flourish uh, around the world. And one could go on, and of course, one of the areas of that and of denialism, uh, particularly is within the whole climate change issue. Um, and without wanting to know what your own views on that are, certainly we realize that uh, those who are scientists and who studied this now for a very long time, at least half a century, are now saying that uh, there is a something confronting the planet as a whole which has become, quotes, undeniable and irreversible, as the latest IPPC report said. Well, undeniable perhaps for them, but very deniable uh, over these last 50 years by those who have known the truth, but not only refuse to tell it, but indeed to confuse it. So you have skepticism, confusion, sometimes deliberately sown, political inertia, uh, and uh, um, what appears to be something of a, a calamity approaching. And that's been this case for about 40, 40, 50 years. 40 years is approximately the length of time between the day when God called a young lad called Jeremiah, we just read the story, to warn Judah about a coming calamity, and the 40 years until the day it actually happened at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian army. And by hands, read swords, spears, chains, flames, rape, pillage, everything that happened when Jerusalem was destroyed in 587 BC and the people were carried off into exile. So what was it like to be a preacher in times like that? In Jeremiah's day, 40 years of warnings that went unheeded by most of the population, such was the depth of skepticism, denial, and rebellion that was there in Judah, the little tiny little kingdom of Judah, by that late stage of their long history of many generations of unfaithfulness to God. Well, Jeremiah tells us very bluntly what it was like uh, in his country at that time. Uh, And I I just wanted to give you a, a very selective catalog of the kind of culture of Judah in Jeremiah's day from just a sampling of the early chapters of his book. And as I read through these, I think you'll find it doesn't take much imagination to find abundant echoes and parallels with what we see in our world today, and particularly in some of our our own societies. So I'm going to look, first of all, at some of the marks of a skeptical society that we see in Jeremiah, and then move to the chapter that Rhys just read to us uh, to see the call of a very skeptical preacher uh, who really didn't want to be a preacher at all, Uh, And then we look at some of the words of the assurance of God's sovereign gift that he gave to Jeremiah in the midst of that chapter. So here are some marks of this skeptical society of Judah. First of all, they place a high value on things that were really no value at all, but were worthless and empty. This is what the Lord says, "'What fault did your ancestors find in me "'that they strayed so far from me? "'They followed worthless idols, and became worthless themselves, Jeremiah 2, verse five, valuing things that are unvaluable. Secondly, they've got no sense of guilt. They repeatedly protest their innocence. In other words, it's a culture of moral denial. On your clothes is find the lifeblood of the innocent poor. And yet in spite of all this, you say, I am innocent. He's not angry with me. But I will pass judgment on you because you say, I have not sinned. Chapter 2, verses 34 and 35. They are skilled and practice in evil, but not in doing good. My peoples are fools. They do not know me. They are senseless children. They've got no understanding. They are skilled in doing evil, but they don't know how to do good. Chapter 4, verse 22. And this state of affairs has become virtually incorrigible. They seem to be unable to change their ways because can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard its spots? Neither can you do good who are so accustomed to doing evil, chapter 13, verse 23. There's also a complete loss of truth, of honesty, of integrity. Go up and down the streets of Jerusalem, says God to the young Jeremiah. Look around and consider, search through the squares. If you can find just one person who deals honestly and speaks the truth, I will forgive this city. The assumption is they couldn't. And then they treat God, whatever they consider to be God, Yahweh, of course, for them, whatever the word God means in our society, they treat God as irrelevant or if he's even there at all, he's blind. So they have lied about the Lord. They say, he'll do nothing. No harm will come to us. We will never see the sword or famine. God doesn't see. That's chapter five, verse 12. They're a population that have become characterized as foolish, senseless, stubborn, rebellious. That's what it says in chapter five, verse 21 and 23. There's wealth. Plenty of wealth for some, but no concern at all for the poor. In other words, injustice reigns. They have become rich and powerful. They've grown fat and sleek, but their evil deeds have no limit. They don't seek justice. They don't promote the case of the fatherless. They do not defend the just cause of the poor. Chapter 5, verses 27 and 28 and they hate and they ridicule the scriptures. Their ears are closed so that they cannot hear. The word of the Lord is offensive to them. They find no pleasure in it, whether that was the oral word or possibly even, a little bit later, the written word such as they had it. Indeed, their popular pundits, the commentators, the the chatterati, the, the, the people who talk all the time, We're peddling a superficial optimism. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there's no peace, no shalom. Chapter six, verse 14. And they do that very next verse with complete shamelessness. They're so hardened that they can't even remember what it was like to blush. And I think of some of my politicians in my own country. Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct no they've got no shame at all they don't even know how to blush chapter 6 verse 15. there's a kind of intellectual arrogance which is self-deceiving and tantamount to lying how can you say we are wise for we have the law of the lord the torah of the lord when actually the lying pen of the scribes have handled it falsely. Interesting thing that they have the scriptures, but they falsify even the scriptures. The wise will be put to shame. They'll be dismayed and trapped because they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what kind of wisdom do they actually have? The loss of social integrity. Deception is everywhere. Trust nobody. Beware of your friends. Don't trust anyone, even in your own clan, for every one of them is a deceiver, every friend a slanderer. Friend deceives friend, no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongues to lie. They weary themselves with sinning, and you live in the midst of deception. Chapter nine, verses four to six. But ironically, they trust in any false God they can find. The idolatry is rife. You have forgotten me, says God, and trusted in false gods. Chapter 13, verse 25. And behind all of those things, to bring this catalogue to a conclusion, and in many ways accounting for them, is that they had become a nation who no longer listen to the voice of God in any form. Yeah. Chapter
2: 7,
3: verse 28. Therefore say to them, this is the nation that has not obeyed, it says in our NIV, rightly as a good translation, but the literal is they have not listened to the voice of the Lord their God or responded to correction. Truth has perished. It has vanished from their lips because they no longer have their ears open to the word of God. In fact, moving on from that, in fact, the defining moment really in the story of Jeremiah was when the nation's government, their king, representing the whole people, deliberately chose to burn the word of God. That is the scroll that Barak had so painfully written out of all of Jeremiah's warnings for about 23 years. Imagine what that did to Barak as he had to listen to Jeremiah reciting all those words. And you remember the story there, of course, in Jeremiah 36, where Jehoiakim insisted not just to burn it, but first of all, to insist on listening to it, read out loud column by column by column, and then systematically chopping it up and consigning it to the flames. That was Jehoiakim in 605 BC. And you get the feeling that it was all downhill after that event, a vortex of denial and delusion, until eventually the catastrophe swamped the whole nation. Now, we may ask, possibly might even be asking at this point, is it legitimate? Is it hermeneutically appropriate to compare Old Testament Israel, Judah, the kingdom of Judah with the contemporary world? I mean, as you read those words, you can hear lots of echoes of contemporary societies. Because after all, we would want to say that no nation today stands in the same covenant relation to the God as Israel did. No, indeed, of course we don't. But as some of you I'm sure know that I've tried to argue in great length elsewhere in my book, Old Testament Ethics for the People of God, that I do see a paradigm nature in which Israel's social, economic, and political life as revealed to us both in the constitution that God gave them in the Torah and in the history of how it developed over the centuries, that 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 was intended by God to be a visible model to the nations of God's wider demand on human societies. This is the kind of society God wants. This is what they became. Learn your lesson, as it were. Because tragically, of course, even though they were intended to be a light to the nations, intended to be God's visible model, tragically, although not surprisingly, because after all, they were a nation of sinners just as much as any other nation are a nation of sinners. Tragically, they who were the people who were supposed to be the vehicle of God's blessing to all nations, as promised to Abraham, behaved just as badly as the pagan nations around them, and indeed even worse in some respects, as Ezekiel said. So therefore, when we explore, as I just very briefly tried to sketch, When we explore the symptoms of their social collapse and the causes of the calamity that befell them under God's judgment, and along with all the warnings that God had given them over the centuries through the prophets, it can sometimes be like looking in the mirror when we think of ourselves and our own society and indeed sometimes our church. But just going back to that uh, last text that I quoted, that they were a nation that no longer listened to the voice of God in chapter seven, verse 28, does that not describe Western culture that has come to dominate so many other global cultures around the world? Since it was decided some 300 years ago in the so-called enlightenment, that really it would be better for human flourishing if God were excluded politely from the public realm altogether, other than paying some lip service through religious rituals and incantations. God, in a sense, could be like a constitutional monarch. And we've just seen something of that. Some of you probably watched the coronation of King Charles III, with all the trappings, all the splendor of that sort of thing, if you like it, but without a shred of actual power or relevance for all practical purposes. In other words, God, as it were in Western culture, you can have your God if you want, and you can give him all that you want to say to him, but in real life, he is as irrelevant to the way everything operates as King Charles is to the actual government of Britain. So all the symbols of authority are given him, swords and a scepter and and all this wonderful splendor and it's wonderful and beautiful, but as far as he's concerned, it's really not terribly relevant to everyday life in the nation. Western culture has treated God in the same way. And since we also need to see Old Testament Israel as part of our story, the story of the people of God, namely the church, because this is our story, it's one people in that sense, Surely then we might ask the question, was Israel's failure to listen to the voice of God not also mirrored in the church and particularly I would want to say in the Western church? Because we too, post enlightenment, stopped listening to the voice of God, at least certainly no longer prepared to hear or to even want to hear the voice of God within the pages of scripture. And so we reap, in a sense, the long-term fruit of that rise of the kind of biblical criticism which claims academic objectivity and presuppositions uh, which has then infected the church and our seminaries and our teachers. So that the whole idea of, quote, hearing the voice of God in the Bible sank from the realm of any sort of authoritative preaching or teaching as public truth in society to the realm of, well, private opinion or a smilingly naive personal devotion. But we need to get back to Jeremiah. We've looked at some of the marks of a skeptical society as it was back then. So what was God's answer to a nation that could be described in that way from Jeremiah's own book? And God's answer was a typical God surprise, a young lad who rightly, felt himself utterly inadequate for the job that God was laying on his shoulders. Because into that very skeptical world, God sent a very skeptical preacher. And so that leads us therefore secondly, to the call of a skeptical preacher. So God's words to Jeremiah, his opening words uh, in chapter one, are of course very rich in personal and spiritual significance. The word of the Lord came to me Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart, and I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Now, of course, none of us can claim to have that precise kind of prophetic calling or scriptural status. I don't want to suggest that at all. And yet the words surely can resonate. They're there in scripture. They resonate with those of us who have discerned a calling from God to share in that task of sharing his word among the nations of the world, whether in our own nation, as pastors and preachers in, uh, in, in that sense, or indeed to the ends of the earth. And there is in that limited sense, a certain prophetic dimension to our words and our works as they go together, provided they're rooted and shaped uh, by the biblical gospel. We'll come back to those words in verse five in just a moment, but it's interesting just to look at Jeremiah's first response in verse six. Do you remember? He says, alas, sovereign God, I don't know how to speak. I'm too young. There's a certain irony in those words, isn't there? Because Jeremiah knows who he's talking to. He knows who this is, who is addressing him. Sovereign Lord, he says, and yet he feels free to argue back. Um, which is a habit that is going to persist through his long ministry. Uh, Jeremiah is no puppet on a string. He's not just a ventriloquist dummy. He has words of his own to speak to God, through which God, of course, speaks to us. And his objection, I think, combines two things. There's a sense of inability. His literal words are, I don't know this speaking thing. (laughs) I don't know how to speak it's I I, I can't this inability but also with inadequacy he says a mere youth that's me that's all he feels I'm just a teenager or whatever he was at the time and I think both of those feelings of inability and inadequacy are probably familiar to many of us uh, especially if we are in ordained pastoral ministry or whatever ministry we may have uh, that sometimes those feelings can overwhelm us found inability, lack of skill, unequal to the challenge of communicating God's word competently, effectively. There's so much depth in the scriptures. The more you study them, the more inadequate you feel to ever really get there, to be able to communicate them with words and phrases that I might drum up. And along with that inability goes this inadequacy. Am I really up to the job at all? For Jeremiah, as probably for Timothy, from what Paul says to him, he was feeling too young. Let no one despise your youth, says Paul to Timothy, you remember. For Moses, and for some of us, it was probably a feeling of being too old. Uh, And that feeling sometimes, at any rate, has afflicted me in recent years. Can I still really cut it when it comes to clear, powerful preaching of the word? You know, you, you sit and you listen to the younger, dynamic preacher. We we have one now at All Souls Church in Langham Place, Charlie Screen. I love him. And I love his preaching. There's another young guy, Ollie, is well, the student leader. He has such creativity. He It, it all comes across so well, uh, eloquent and everything else. And you sit there, you know, well, maybe that was me once, but I might still like that. You know, you get this feeling sometimes, can I still do that? And of course, there's also sometimes the temptation to disillusionment anyway. Well, will it really make any difference? I've been preaching all my life, but has it really made any difference after all these years? Is anybody really listening? And so it's easy to become skeptical about our calling and our ministry. Cynical, depressed, resentful. And as you know, if you've read the book of Jeremiah, that was certainly a temptation that Jeremiah faced for his whole lifetime. Judging from those painfully honest confessions and complaints to God that Jeremiah makes, Lord, you've cheated me, Lord, you've deceived me, Lord, I wish I was never born and so on. And you realize that Jeremiah, that feeling of inadequacy and inability when God first called him was not something that left him very quickly. So Jeremiah responds then with this skepticism to God's calling, expressing this feeling of not being up to it. And actually, when you think about it, that's probably not such a bad thing, because surely the opposite of that would not be what God wanted either. We don't want really Jeremiah saying, sure God, you know, I can do this, thank you for asking, I'm brilliant at it, I'm fully equipped, you know, I, I've done all the training, I've got the certificate, here I am, I'm your man, or I'm your woman, here I come. And that's not going to end well, is it? Uh, And so we need to move on then from the marks of a skeptical society and this calling of a very skeptical preacher to the assurance of the sovereign God that he was speaking to. Because just as Jeremiah didn't respond to God's call in the way I just caricatured, you know, great, I'll do this, I'm up to it. Neither did God respond to Jeremiah's plea of inability and inadequacy with some kind of pep talk. You know, oh, that's okay, don't worry, Jeremiah, you'll be fine, you're a star, I can tell that you've got what it takes, just, just believe in yourself and it will all be wonderful. No, God did not do that at all. God's response to Jeremiah there in, in verses five and six, is particularly um, verse five, it seems to me to give us four things of which the first two will take us a little bit longer. So don't worry. Uh, the last two will be much, much quicker. There's first of all, the givenness of the preacher and secondly, the givenness of the word and then thirdly, the dual impact of the message and finally the assurance of God's presence. So first of all, the givenness of the preacher, now, verse 5, as you can see, and as we read it there, has got four verbs with God as the subject. I formed, I knew, I consecrated, I gave is actually the last word. It's usually translated, I appointed you. It's the Hebrew verb, nathan, and it will come again in verse 9, translated as put. So both the preacher and the word itself are given by God. I gave you and I gave this word into your mouth. So the life of Jeremiah the man and the book of Jeremiah the prophet didn't happen as the outworking of some career plan that Jeremiah or his parents dreamt up for him. They were shaped by the mind and the plan of God from all eternity. Which means, therefore, that The state of the nation of Judah at this point in their history, while it obviously caused God great grief and indeed great anger, great pain, was not something that caught God by surprise. In God's sovereign providence, God had anticipated this situation and had prepared his preacher prophet for it, even before he was born, even before he existed even before he was a fetus in the womb. And even that, his prenatal life, as it were, in the womb, was not just the biological product of his father Hilkiah and his mother in their marital union. No, God says, I formed you. Using the same verb as a potter who shapes a clay pot, which is the image of the metaphor that comes in Jeremiah chapter 18, for God's sovereign governance of the world. So the God who shapes the destinies of nations had shaped Jeremiah to be a prophet for the nations before he even existed. Secondly, I knew you. A word of intimate personal knowledge, relational commitment, usually translated in this kind of context as I chose you. I knew and therefore I chose. So God's foreknowledge and choice of this preacher, even before his conception and birth, meant that it had nothing to do with his qualities in life. You know, the kind of student he'd been, and you know, it had nothing to do with that. There are no grounds for pride in this calling. Before you were born, I knew you. And thirdly, I consecrated you, that is set you apart, literally uh, made holy. They word sometimes sanctified, consecrated, uh, but it's the word that's used regularly of Israel. That God has set them apart from the nations as his priestly people in the midst of the nations, been made holy, distinct, different, separate from the rest. That, of course, was going to be literally true for Jeremiah. The greatest, one of the great pains of his life was that he did indeed stand apart from his family, from their priestly profession, from the community. He wasn't allowed to get married. He wasn't allowed to go to weddings and funerals. Whenever anything was happening in the village, he wasn't there. Think how lonely that was. He was separate from the rest of the prophets, from the priests, and even most of the kings that he ministered under. His was, to quote one commentator, his was a lonely sanctification, as is still the case for many faithful preachers of the gospel today. And then fourthly, I formed, I knew, and I gave you. It says literally, a prophet to the nations, I have given you. And that's what I mean by this phrase, the givenness of the preacher. That it's not so much the case that God was giving a job to Jeremiah, as that God had already given Jeremiah to this job. Jeremiah was not so much gifted as we might talk about a gifted speaker or something like that, as given. And I think this accounts for that sense of inescapable compulsion that Jeremiah expresses through his life. He wasn't forced to preach the word of God, but in a sense, he knew that he'd been given no other option because it was an agony when he tried to stop. Do you remember one time he says, if I say I no longer speak, it's like a fire in my bones, he said. He was quite literally born for this. A fact which sometimes depressed him and made him so angry that he wished he'd never been born at all if being born was for this life. So what does all that say about our ministry if we are pastors or preachers, and some of us are, I realize, in the room? What does it say about our, our mission if that's what God has called us to do? Now, of course, we are not prophets like Jeremiah, in that sense. I'm not suggesting that. But there is a sense, is there not, surely, in which we are, quote, given by God to his people. Certainly, that was how Paul puts it. You remember in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13, that Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. God gave these gifts, the gifts of pastors, preachers, and teachers to his people. Now those verses, Ephesians 4, seem to me to reverse the popular view of the reason why we have clergy in the churches. You know, God doesn't give a congregation to the pastor to support him or her in their ministry. It's precisely the other way around, according to Paul, that God gives the pastor to their congregation to equip them for their ministry, which is out there in the world. I sometimes say that when I'm preaching, especially in Anglican churches where the vicar is sitting over there and I'm in the pulpit here. And I say to the people, I, say, I hope you don't think that you come to church every Sunday to support John and his ministry. Because according to this text, Ephesians, it's the other way around, he comes to church every Sunday to support you and your ministry. Which is out there in the world in the works of service that you do in all kinds of ways for god of course uh, some young pastors straight out of seminary do possibly think of themselves as god's gift to the church Um, well they are but maybe not in the way they might think And i wonder whether this givenness of the preacher could be at least part of an antidote to that weariness that delusionment that can engulf us sometimes when we think that our ministry is being futile and fruit, fruitless, as Jeremiah undoubtedly thought. It just reminds ourselves, look, God has given me to this task, even before I was conscious of being called into it. That ministry and mission are not all about having the gifts, but about being the gift of God as the person that God has created you to be. And I think it also gives a stronger foundation and integrity to our own sense of self-dedication to this work. Do you know, you, I'm sure you may well have said, especially when you've been working terribly hard for a while and you're utterly exhausted, you know, I've really given myself to this ministry. And of course we mean it. Rightly so. But in reality, that self-giving is only a reflex of the fact that God has given us to this work first. Indeed, there's something, I think, analogous to the Lord Jesus Christ himself in that combination. Paul, of course, you remember, could rejoice in knowing, quote, Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. But at the same time, John affirms that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God gave the son and the son gave himself. And so it is, I think, for us. We give ourselves to God's service and to preach God's word because God first has given us to his people for the sake of his mission in the world. So there's a givenness of the preacher then, but there's also, just so we don't get too bloated by that, there is the givenness of the word in verses 7 and 9. Partly expressed by verse 7, which is literally, to everyone to whom I send you, you shall go and everything that I command you, you shall say, everyone, everything, wherever, whatever. In other words, Jeremiah had no free choice either of his audience or his message. There was no question of addressing those who liked him or those who paid him well, just telling them what they wanted to hear. I mean, there were enough prophets doing that already in Jeremiah's time. We read about them in chapter 23. And I think this this relentless pressure of this double mandate, this wherever I send you, whatever I command you, that was going to cause Jeremiah great unpopularity, a lot of suffering year after year in his ministry. But even more explicit about the givenness of the word is in verse nine, as I said, the Lord reached out his hand, touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. And that little word put is once again, the Hebrew verb nathan in verse five. I have literally given my word into your mouth. There's an echo here, of course, of Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, when God had said that he would indeed raise up a prophet like Moses and put his word in that prophet's mouth. And almost certainly Jeremiah is identifying or being identified with that generic language of a prophet like Moses. So Jeremiah then is a given preacher with a given word. The preacher and the word are both God's gift. Indeed, in the case of Jeremiah, there's a very close identification between the words of Jeremiah, plural, in chapter one, verse one, and the word of the Lord in chapter one, verse two. Uh, it was read to us a few moments ago, and there is in fact, a relative pronoun at the beginning of verse two, the Hebrew asher, which is sometimes related to whom, to whom the word of the Lord came, meaning to Jeremiah. But actually the syntax of the two verses makes it, I would say more natural and very possible to read it, that the words, the word of the Lord refer not so much to Jeremiah the man, but to the words of Jeremiah. In other words, we could translate the two verses like this, that these are the words of Jeremiah, son of so-and-so and -and -and so-and-so, which were or which constituted the word of the Lord to him. The words of Jeremiah, which were the word of the Lord. Because that opening of the book is potentially echoed, maybe deliberately, in the closing of the chapter 51, verse 64. Jeremiah 52 is a kind of appendix which just describes the fall of Jerusalem. At the end of chapter 51, we read the words of Jeremiah end here. In other words, the whole book between chapter 1 verse 1 and chapter 51 verse 65, the whole book simultaneously are the words of Jeremiah which constitute the word of God, seems to be the claim that's being made. Now, Andrew Sheed, who's, as you know, at Moore College, has argued, I think convincingly in his book, A Mouthful of Fire, The Word of God in the Words of Jeremiah, that's his book published by IVP in 2012, which um, I've read and used in my own commentary on the book. He argues that the word of the Lord is almost like one of the characters in the book, alongside Jeremiah and all the kings and the false prophets and everything else, that, that the word has a kind of almost personal quality. In the way it's described in jeremiah he tells us for example that the the uh, davar root both as a noun and as a verb occurs more often in jeremiah than in any other old testament book that the, the noun word davar occurs three times more in jeremiah than in isaiah for example that jeremiah uses word formulas like the word of the lord came or thus says the lord or the oracle of yahweh more than any other prophet and there's this running battle going on all the way through the book, between the word and the will of God, of Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the words and the will of the people. It's a constant, aggressive dialogue, confrontation, between what God is saying and what they are saying. And in the end, we know that it's God's word word, that wins. God himself actually puts it like that at the end of the book's narrative, addressing those who chose to leave the land of Judah after the destruction of the city and take refuge in Egypt against the advice of Jeremiah, who had been, the irony of those chapters is incredible. They asked Jeremiah for a word from the Lord. And Jeremiah says, okay, he goes away and listens. He says, God says, don't go to Egypt. And they say, rubbish, falsehood, checkered, nonsense. We're going to Egypt, whatever you say. It's just so ironic that they ask for the word of God. When they get the word of the God, they're still denying it. But God says, chapter 44, verse 28, Then then the whole remnant of Judah who came to live in Egypt will know whose word will stand, mine or theirs. And it wasn't theirs. God's word stands in this book. One king burnt the scroll, but the word went on. Jeremiah says to Barak, okay, we'll just write it all out again. (laughs) And Barak puts at the end, and many other things were added. (laughs) In other words, the second one was even longer than the first. Another king locked up the prophet, Zedekiah chapter 32, but the word of God was free. It wasn't imprisoned. The people are dragged off into exile in an unclean land where they probably thought they couldn't even pray to God, but the word could reach them even there. In the letter that Jeremiah sent them. Babylon might rule the world for a while, but the word of God would sink Babylon in the Euphrates, chapter 50 and 51. So God then reassures Jeremiah with this givenness of his word. That was a reassurance he was going to need through 40 years of thankless, lonely ministry in a skeptical and rebellious nation. Now, Again, I repeat, because I really want to make this clear, that we are not prophets like Jeremiah. We can't stand up to preach and post the claim, thus saith the Lord, about our own sermons, our own lectures, our own books. No, God's word is now and forever given in the scriptures. And nevertheless, amazingly, God has entrusted that once given word to our mouths. In the sense that when we speak and preach from the Bible, It is God's word that we're taking on our lips. And Peter makes that point, doesn't he? Let the one who speaks speak as speaking the very oracles of God. So it's an enormous privilege. It's also a pretty scary responsibility. Those of us who preach know how scaring it is to claim to preach the Bible. But it's also a strengthening reassurance. Because you see, Jeremiah's book tells us that God's word will do its work and will as Isaiah says, produce fertile growth as rain does with fertility. And so this, I think, again, gives us that sense of renewed reassurance and motivation when we feel that weariness and disillusionment, even in the midst of the tumult of the nations, of the groaning of the planet, the ineffectiveness and dysfunction of our churches, and so much of our efforts in mission. So if God has called us into his service in this particular role of preaching his word, then you are God's gift to his people and through his people to the world. And the word that you study and preach and seek to live out and obey, that also is God's gift to his people and through his people to the world. So more briefly and finally then, let's think about the the dual impact of God's word and then ultimately the reassurance of of, of God's presence. In verse 10, God says these famous words to Jeremiah, See, today I appointed you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Appointed you over nations and kingdoms, plural. Probably a bit of a surprise to Jeremiah. Uh, There he was just in the middle of tiny little Judah. I mean, Judah was a minuscule little state. Of course, there would be some literal meaning to that because we know very interestingly that Jeremiah's messages in Jerusalem were known to the outside world. Quite clear that the Babylonian intelligence service knew about Jeremiah, they knew what he'd been saying, that he had been urging Judah and the surrounding little nations to surrender to Nebuchadnezzar and not have such a terrible fate. That's why he was branded a traitor in Jerusalem and nearly killed but also why his life was spared by the Babylonian army when they captured the city. They picked Jeremiah out, as it were, and kept him safe. But in a far more profound sense, of course, it is indeed the word of God spoken through the prophets and recorded in the whole of Scripture, ultimately, that governs human history. God has his plans and God has articulated them in his word. And it's those plans of God and the mission of God, to coin a phrase, which overrule and override the plans and the conspiracies of even the most powerful nations and empires, even though they play their part in the outworking of God's plans and purposes. This is something which Psalm 33 makes majestically affirms. You begin in Psalm 33 verses 4 and 5 with God's world transforming word. It's a word that puts the world to rights by justice and love. And then you move on to God's world creating word in verses 6 to 9, speaking the universe into existence by the breath of his mouth. And then after the redemptive and the creative word of God comes God's world governing word in Psalm 33 verses 10 and 11. The Lord foils the plans of the nations and thwarts the purposes of the peoples, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations, the plans, the word, the purpose of God. And you know, the Old Testament itself is proof of that claim. In fact, I sometimes think that this is one of the reasons why God gave us the Old Testament over such a span of time. Why is it that we've got, whatever it is, about 1,500 years, you know, a couple of millennia of human history all in there? Surely it's making this point that earthly empires rise and fall, but God's word and God's mission continue. And it's a sequence which you go again and again. Egypt, Canaan, Syria, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. You know, empires, nations, they rise, they fall, they come, they go. But the word of God, the plans of God, and the people of God go on forever. And it's almost as if God gives us the Old Testament and says, don't you get the point yet? It's God who is ultimately in charge. And we could illustrate the same truth, of course, though without the same kind of scriptural infallibility, from the last 2,000 years of history since the book of Acts, or even just the last 50 years, and to look up and to see what is God doing in his world? One example I sometimes give when I'm speaking of this is i just old enough to remember the shock that went around the Christian mission community in Northern Ireland, where I come from, uh, in the early 1950s, when uh, the Chinese communists had come to power in China in 1949 and and had driven out all the missionaries. And I remember, because I was only five well, or six at the time, but I remember the sort of hushed tones that some of the adults were talking, what is God, what's happening in China, all the missionaries have been thrown out at the end of the church, at the end of mission and so on. And now look what has happened in China in this last half century. Uh, Yesterday, there would have been more Christians in church worshipping God in the People's Republic of China, mainland China, than in all of Western Europe put together. Um, So, you know, the plans and purposes will go on. God has made known his purpose to us, that he's going to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ, says Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. And so if we align our preaching ministry with the mission of God, then we are on the right side of history, even though we're so often told as Christians that we're on the wrong side of history. No, no, history moves according to the plans of God and under the sovereign reign of God, sometimes in surprising ways, sometimes like mustard seeds or like yeast and a bunch of dough or like the net and seed, the sea, the parables of Jesus, but it is God's word, God's reign that ultimately will stand. I love a little quote that I sometimes use from Martin Luther uh, after some of the very dangerous days that he'd had in Wittenberg. uh, And he says this, that uh, I simply taught and preached and wrote God's word, otherwise I did nothing. And while I slept or drank my Wittenberg beer with my friends, Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing, the word did everything. Martin Luther, it's a good advert for a Wittenberg beer apart from anything else, <laughs> which I rather like. You, know, you can take a rest, God's word will go on doing its work. And you notice this double metaphor, uprooting and tearing down, destroying and overthrowing and building and planting, striking metaphors. That on the one hand, there's a a digging out of something that's unfruitful in order to plant new trees or to demolish an old building that's become unsafe and build something new that will last better. Jeremiah, of course, had more of the first to do. We did get round to the second in chapters 30 to 33. And I think, again, that our ministry ought to have some elements of both of those. There is a legitimate destruction as well as construction to our ministry and our preaching. It'd even be worth asking of any sermon we're going to preach. You know, What will this demolish and what will it build up? It's Unwise to do one without the other. What falsehoods, what's evil should this be uprooting and demolishing? And what truths, what blessings will this be building up and planting? And then finally, as well as that double aspect of the power of the word of God, there's the double assurance of God's presence. Verse eight, Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you, and I will rescue you, declares the Lord, I am with you. And verse 19, again, they will fight against you, but they will not overcome you, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. And Jeremiah surely would have remembered when God said that to him, that this was exactly what God had said to Moses in the face of the impossible task that God gave to Moses at 80 years old. And the same impossible task God is laying on Jeremiah, it may be 18 years old, who knows? So are you too old or too young? Well, God says, with you, am I. It's the literal order of the words, with you, here's me, says God. So Jeremiah was going to need that reassurance for those 40 young leaders, and so do we. He had resistance, he was a minority, he had very few friends, just Baruch and a few friends at court, He suffered from an inferiority complex. He was almost suicidally depressive. He was longing with tears for his own people. He was afraid for their future. He had this fraught argumentative relationship with God. He shuddered at God's anger. He wept with God's tears. But at the end of the book, we have the proof of who was right in the end. Was it the lonely preaching of God's word by Jeremiah? or the pervasive, deluded culture of lies, false optimism, denialism at the court and in the country. And we know which it was, because I am with you, said God to Jeremiah and to us. So stick with the word of God and God will stick with you, is the closing message that Jeremiah brings and that I bring this afternoon. Thank you.
1: I'm going to pray for Langham, if you could please stand. Praise you, Heavenly Father, for the legacy of John Stott and thank you for the ministries today of Langham in encouraging scholars, in publishing books and in training preachers, and thank you for Chris's oversight of of these various ministries. Please, may you, this day, convert many men and women, boys and girls, through the various ministries of Langham around the world. Please, would you raise up in this country and beyond many men and women who would preach and teach the Word. And please, would you give to Chris and to each of us every day some signs that you are present and active, around us and through us, that we might take heart for the work you've called us to do. We pray all these prayers, confident, Lord Jesus, that you hear us, confident in the Father's mercy, confident in the ministry you set before us. Uh, And these things we pray in Christ's strong name. Amen. Amen. We say the grace together. The grace grace of of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ and the love of God and the the fellowship fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, evermore. Amen. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Ridley College Podcast brought to you by Ridley College. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and liking our podcast. Also, be sure to check out our Ridley Chapel Sermons podcast through the link in our podcast description. This podcast is made possible through the generous donations of our alumni and supporters. We welcome your partnership with us in our mission of equipping men and women for God's mission in our rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. If you'd like to contribute to our work, you can donate via the link in the description below.